Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a urologist discusses diagnosis and treatment of kidney stones. Once the stones form, there's not much that can be done except to remove them surgically or to pass them on your own. To prevent the formation of the stones in the first place, we have to really focus on diet, exercise, and in some cases, medication. A registered dietitian nutritionist tells about the dietary needs of people who are in treatment for lung cancer. There's actually data showing that lung cancer patients in particular do much better when they are not underweight, when they're not malnourished. And a community leader explains the role of the community trauma response team. I call trauma the invisible demon. That's something you can't see, you don't know what people carry, you don't know what they deal with. So we wanted to put a process in place to kind of, you know, address that as much as we could. All that along with a selection from The Healing Muse after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. During the month of November, we're taking a look at lung cancer, and today we'll learn about the unique dietary needs of people who have lung cancer. Then we'll discuss the important role of the community trauma response team in Syracuse. But first, we'll explore what's important to know about kidney stones, diagnosis, treatment options, and prevention. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The incidence of kidney stones is said to be increasing worldwide, with around 15% of the population at risk for stone formation. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio to discuss what to do about kidney stones is Dr. Scott Weiner, an assistant professor of urology and the director of the kidney stone program in the Department of Urology at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Weiner. Thank you for having me, Amber. It's a pleasure to be here. So what are kidney stones? What are they made of? So most kidney stones are made of uh, calcium-based minerals. Many of that is calcium oxalate. Some are calcium phosphate. And there are a variety of other more rare types of kidney stones, such as uric acid, cysteine, and uh, other more rare types than that. What's the medical term? There are a variety of terms that we use. Oh, okay. Sometimes we'll call them nephrolithiasis or urolithiasis. Sometimes we will describe that in terms of what organ the stone is in. So if it's in the kidney, we may refer to it as nephrolithiasis. If it's in the ureter, it may be ureterolithiasis. Well, I was going to ask, the stones can form anywhere along the urinary tract? Typically, we think that stones in the kidney are forming, uh, for the most part, on a small plaque called Randall's plaque. Think of the plaque that forms on your teeth when you don't brush often enough. It's the same material. This is calcium phosphate. Calcium phosphate is found all throughout our body and makes up almost all pathologic biominerals. So that's the plaque on your teeth, the plaque in your heart that forms right before you have a heart attack, the plaque in the arthritic joints, and all sorts of things like that. So we're seeing these minerals all throughout our body, and for the most part, they're fairly similar. When they form in the kidney, they can break through the surface of the kidney, and just like when uh, children make rock candy, they put the string in the sugar water, as soon as that calcium phosphate touches the urine, it blooms into a kidney stone. And that typically is made of calcium oxalate. You mentioned Randall's plaque, mm -hmm. and you talked about the plaque in, in your teeth. Mm -hmm. I brush my teeth, you know, twice a day mm -hmm. to reduce this, but I can't do anything to reduce the buildup in my kidneys, can I? We don't really understand why this Randall plaque is forming, and we find it in many people who don't make kidney stones. But one thing that we do see is kidney stones attached to it, so we think it's very important. Once the stones form, however, there's not much that can be done except to remove them surgically or to pass them on your own. To prevent the formation of the stones in the first place, we have to really focus on diet, exercise, and in some cases, medication. So what are, let's, let's talk more in depth about how to prevent kidney stones, sure. um, diet. Um, I've heard, you know, lots of fluids is, mm -hmm. is good. Water, mm -hmm. um, uh, cranberry juice thing. Is there one fluid that's better than another? So what I typically recommend is the volume of fluid is the most important thing. So rather than making drastic changes to what you're drinking, the, if you can do one thing is to drink lots of fluid. So 
Typical recommendations are for 1.5 to 2.5 liters of urine production per day. So in order to meet that, a person needs to drink much more than that, so two to three liters of water per day because we sweat and have other ways in which we lose water. So it can be difficult, and um, especially when taking into consideration that we recommend a low-salt diet, patients very often aren't thirsty. So it's a real challenge to increase uh, fluid intake with kidney stones. You have to think about it and make sure that you're... Yeah, it has to be a conscious effort for most people. Now, are there any signs, like how would a person know that they're prone to develop kidney stones? So sometimes a family history is important, but for most people, it comes out of nowhere. Often they'll report that it was two in the morning, they were asleep, and they woke up suddenly. Perhaps they rolled over and the kidney stone fell into place uh, and just so obstructed their kidney and caused that severe pain. Are there certain people that are more um, prone? You, you said family history sometimes matters, but other than that, are men or women more prone? Yeah, historically men have been more at risk, and we sort of attributed that to dietary risk factors and maybe hormonal influences, but more and more we're seeing women affected by kidney stones. And this has matched pretty closely the rise in obesity and diabetes and uh, what we consider to be the Western diet high in salt and protein. All right. Uh, at certain ages? Uh, typically, um, if a child is forming kidney stones, it's more likely to be a genetic or familial kind of kidney stones. We mostly see kidney stones in the fifth and sixth decades. Well, we talked about things to uh, fluids to eat or ingest um, to reduce your risk. Are there things to avoid eating that would reduce your risk? Sometimes if the kidney stones contain oxalate, meaning that they're calcium oxalate stones, we recommend um, consuming a normal amount of calcium in your diet, so don't avoid calcium. And when you do eat foods that are rich in oxalates, like teas, chocolates, and nuts, to have a little bit of calcium with those foods to bind that oxalate in your intestines instead of in your kidneys. So calcium, when you say calcium, I think of milk, That's, but there's yep. other things that have calcium. Sure. Um, so milk products, uh, supplements like Tums or other over-the-counter calcium supplements are fine to have. We want about 1,200 milligrams a day. So even though the kidney stones are made up of calciums, is it the same calcium that's in milk? Yes, it is the same calcium. The main thing to recognize is that it's better to have those minerals form in your, in your intestines, in your stomach, than in your kidneys. So uh -huh. if we eat the calcium, we prevent our body from having abnormalities in calcium metabolism, and that prevents loss of calcium in the urine. Additionally, it binds that oxalate in the intestines. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Scott Weiner, an assistant professor of urology who directs the department's kidney stone program. Now, from what I've heard, kidney stones can be extremely painful. And you mentioned they may wake someone up from a sound sleep in the middle of the night. Um, is that pain a signal that it's an emergency and you need to get to the hospital? Yes, I think whenever someone has severe unexplained abdominal or flank pain, it's important to seek medical care. Um, one thing to consider is that uh, just having a stone that's passing doesn't mean you need a procedure. So when you come to the emergency room and if they diagnose you with a kidney stone, if possible, they would want you to try to pass that stone on your own. If it's small enough and if there are no other signs of infection or kidney damage or any other problems, then they may send you home with uh, appropriate pain medications and see if the stone will pass. Perhaps they would ask you to strain your urine, and if that doesn't work, then there are a variety of surgical procedures that we can use to help you out. Now, how do they find out for sure that you've got a kidney stone? If you come in with this pain, it, I mean, it could be something else, right? Yes. So historically, we've been doing uh, CAT scans, which is a scan that uses a lot of x-rays to diagnose the kidney stone, and increasingly concerns about radiation exposure have shifted us towards ultrasound in the emergency mm. room setting. So ultrasound doesn't show us much about the stone. It doesn't often tell us how big the stone is or exactly where it is. So what we can see is a blockage of the kidney. So if someone comes in with a blockage of the kidney and they're otherwise healthy, uh, the suspicion would be for a kidney stone. Depending on a variety of factors. The urologist may get a CAT scan afterwards, but um, don't be surprised if an ultrasound is the only thing that's used to diagnose the stone. 
So how do you determine whether the person can go home and pass the stone on their own or, or not? So typically the stones are less likely to pass based on the size of the stone. So about five millimeters, about the size of a pea, is sort of the cutoff between the 50% chance of passing a stone. So less than that, more likely than not to pass the stone. Over five millimeters, less likely to pass the stone. Once we get to about a centimeter, it's very unlikely to pass the stone. That's about the size of a dime. Wow, okay. So a few weeks back, Gene Simmons from KISS was said to have had a stent placed to help him expel a kidney stone that he had. Um, I'd never heard of the stents in the, in the kit. Tell me about how that's sure. done. So a stent is a small plastic tube. It has a coil on both ends, uh, and it's about 10 inches long. And what this does is it bypasses the stone. It goes from the bladder to the kidney. You don't see it. It's inside the body, and it's placed using a camera, so there's no cuts or incisions to place it. We typically place a stent for patients with a stone under a few sick, few situations, like pain that's too severe to tolerate uh, pain medicine at home with nausea and vomiting and you just can't keep anything down. If there's injury to the kidney as a result of the stone, like a rise in your creatinine, or if there's any sign or symptom of an infection like a fever. Okay. Well, um, let's talk about the people who might need some sort of an intervention, sure. um, if not a stent, maybe something else. What can you tell me about the surgical options that there are? So there are three main types of surgery that we offer for kidney stones that are the most common procedures performed. So first of all, there's shockwave lithotripsy, which is a form of uh, sound waves that are delivered to the kidney at very high intensity while the person is sedated. These machines are brought in uh, to the person's side near the kidney stone, and the sound waves are focused on the stone. This is then used to break up the stone, but really the limitation is that the patient has to pass those fragments on their own after the procedure. Most people do this just fine, but being less invasive, it's also a little bit less likely to clear the person of all of the stones that they might have. So they'll still have to deal with passing They will the have to pass those way. stone fragments, yeah. Um, you said they're sedated, so they don't really feel what is happening. The person wouldn't feel the procedure, but um, it's because it's uh, minimally invasive, the person may, you know, may be able to um, recover a little bit quicker than some of the other procedures and go home, and that's really the main advantage to the procedure. Okay. Another option is what we call ureteroscopy. That's when we take a small telescope. It's a, about uh, the size of a very thick spaghetti noodle, and we take that and we can go up through the urethra into the kidney without any cuts or incisions or anything like that. And we find the stone using the camera and we can actually use a laser or other small tools to break up the stone and remove all of the pieces. And that's nice because we can see that we've removed the pieces and we can guarantee that uh, there's no more stones. That is a little bit more invasive, but a little bit more effective than the shockwave therapy. And the patient is uh, under the patient anesthesia would be asleep, for that? Yep. Okay. All right. Yep. Um, typically, the patient would end up with one of those stents we discussed earlier, which can be a little bit uncomfortable. So some people would prefer a shockwave over the ureteroscopy for that reason. Um, does the stent get removed later? Yeah, we typically stay? take it out about a week later, but depending on the situation, the number of days the stent stays in changes. And so you've got to live with it in there for that long. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Now, with both of those that you've mentioned, does, do they require a hospital stay? No, both of those are uh, same-day procedures, so there's no overnight stay unless there's some sort of problem. But uh, those problems are rare, and I'd say more than 95% of people go home the same day. Okay. And you yep. mentioned there's a third uh, yes, procedure? Yes, the third option is for larger stones. It's a little bit more invasive. It typically requires uh, one night in the hospital. That's called a percutaneous, meaning through the skin, nephrolithotomy, meaning removal of stone. So essentially, we take a needle and we introduce it into the kidney through the back. And um, at this point, we can uh, put a larger telescope in a small incision in the back. That incision is about the size uh, of a dime. Uh, and the tools we use are a little bit larger than a pencil. So you go directly into the kidney? We go directly into the kidney. From there, we can use special tools to break up the stone and suck out the pieces. Um, typically, we would do this procedure on stones that are uh, two centimeters or, or larger. Okay, so they have to yeah. be pretty big. They have to be pretty big, um, but in some circumstances, smaller stones are appropriate for this procedure as well, especially if the person wants to be sure that all of the pieces are gone. 
So the kidney's a solid organ, mm-hmm. and it's pretty good size. How do you know where to go in the kidney? That's a very good question. So uh, typically, uh, in upstate New York, uh, for many years now, a person has had to undergo several procedures in order to actually have the stone removed in this fashion. First, the person would go to sleep, and a urologist would place a catheter in the kidney from below. Then a radiologist would introduce the needle into the kidney and uh, perform what we call renal access. This would allow the urologist to then place the special tools into the kidney and remove the stone later that day. So it actually is three separate procedures, which is a lot. Um, Fortunately now, I've brought a technique called ultrasound-guided percutaneous renal access to upstate New York, and upstate is the only institution in upstate that's doing this particular procedure. So my patients come into the operating room once, they go to sleep, I'm able to find the kidney with an ultrasound, introduce that needle, and then introduce my surgical tools all in one setting. Is the uh, ultrasound live, so you're working while you're watching exactly. the ultrasound? Exactly. Uh, I'm able okay. to see the kidney and diagnose where the stones are in the kidney and any abnormalities to the kidney that I might see on that ultrasound. So you can see whether you got the stone you came after. Exactly. Right we can then. see real-time what's going on. Neat. And the, does that require a patient to stay in the hospital afterward? Uh, typically, my patients would spend one night in the hospital, although um, more and more we may be moving towards same-day discharge. Wow. Well, this has been very interesting. Thank you to Dr. Scott Weiner, Assistant Professor and Director of the Kidney Stone Program in Urology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, dietary concerns during lung cancer treatment. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you or a loved one has a diagnosis of lung cancer, did you realize that your nutrition can be affected? Here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio is registered dietitian nutritionist Maria Erdman from the Upstate Cancer Center. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air. Thank you. How does lung cancer affect nutrition? Well, Lung cancer is usually caught pretty late. By the time people have symptoms, uh, it's already pretty far along. And about 60% of patients diagnosed with lung cancer actually have already lost some weight. Um, Because that might end up being one of the symptoms. Yes, Along with a cough or... Weight loss does alert doctors. Um, So people come in already malnourished. What is unique uh, with lung cancer as opposed to other types of cancers? Well, many smokers, um, people who are diagnosed with lung cancer, also come in already having uh, COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and difficulty breathing. And that disease in itself increases energy needs for patients. Because you're struggling to breathe? Exactly. And it can also, just in speaking with patients, if you're struggling to breathe, eating takes longer becomes a chore, um, so they slow down on eating. Um, There's also, there can be issues with a tumor being very close to the esophagus and pressing on the esophagus, which can make food have a difficult time getting down, which can slow people um, from eating. Just like structurally, just getting from one, okay. Now, in terms of um, someone who's a smoker, does smoking itself impact um, nutrition? Um, what can happen is that smokers tend to smoke instead of eating sometimes. They'll get an oral fixation from smoking. Um, I don't have data on this, but I know from speaking with many patients that uh, a smoker tends to get up in the morning and smoke and maybe have a cup of coffee. Uh, they don't tend to have some breakfast. Uh, many, many smokers are, are not breakfast people. And I think it, it tends to be, well, they've taken care of Okay. An oral fixation. So um, part of what I do uh, try to get patients to do is to start eating more. You know, say, how about we have a little bit ensure before you have a cigarette in the morning if they haven't stopped. Hopefully the manus has caused them to try to stop smoking by then. Okay. 
Well, in general, um, is there advice or a way of eating that you suggest for someone who's dealing with lung cancer? Yeah, it's always a good idea to eat small, frequent meals, especially when you're having a hard time breathing and therefore a hard time eating. Eating high protein, high calorie foods in small quantities so that it's, um, so it's not overwhelming and they don't get out of breath too much. So every couple hours, a small meal helps. You mentioned a protein shake earlier. Is that? Yeah, there are some liquid uh, supplements that can make it easy. I don't suggest those. They're not magic. They're just a supplement. I always suggest people use food when possible, but it's an easy way to add some calories. Drinking tends to be a little bit easier to get down than the work of chewing and swallowing. So if people can supplement in between meals with some of these protein shakes, the higher calorie ones, that can be very helpful. And then that uh, means you don't have to spend the time preparing a meal. Either. Exactly. They're yeah. just ready if you have them on mm-hmm. hand. They're convenient. Um, let's talk about some of the best sources for lean protein. You're looking for lean proteins, right? Um, really. Or at, any kind. <laughs> we do advise uh, an increased intake of plant foods simply because there's been a lot of evidence uh, generated um, that indicates that increasing your intake of plant foods overall tends to decrease inflammation, and that can help everything work better. Um, so plant proteins can be anything from tofu, beans, lentils, uh, nuts and seeds, or nut butters and um, seed butters. So that can be very helpful. Chicken and fish are wonderful options. And really small portions of beef. Um, lean is good, simply Usually smokers tend to have some sort of um, heart health issues also if they've been smoking a long time. Um, So, you know, you have to kind of balance those things out. And the the heart recommendations do say leaner. So avoiding the the high fat foods and um, beef, large quantities of beef can be good. Now, how much of an impact can what a person eats have on their body's ability to fight cancer, right? Because they're in treatment. Yeah. So it, there's actually data showing that um, lung cancer patients in, in particular are uh, do much better when they are not underweight, when they're not malnourished. Their bodies can absorb and use the chemicals from the chemotherapy better, and they can, um, you know, the quality of life is much better when you are well nourished and you're feeling well. So it's, it's an important thing. And even if people are at a late stage of lung cancer, um, there are a lot of treatment options these days that, um, people last a long time sometimes, even if it's a, a late stage treatment and maintaining nutrition can really make that time much better. It, it can really increase the quality of life and help patients continue on and do well with the treatments. Neat. Now, um, comfort foods. Mm. Let me ask you about those because <laughs> when you're going through a stressful time, whether it's cancer treatment or, or something else, um, comfort foods, you know, people, uh, macaroni and cheese, mashed potatoes, a lot of carbs. Mm-hmm. So is a carb overload at this point um, I mean, should people be wary of that, or does it matter that much? Um, You know, it's getting any kind of food is helpful. I give patients ideas of how to pack as many nutrients as possible into foods that are comfort foods. For example, macaroni and cheese. You can put a little bit of lean protein, like maybe some tuna or some chicken, into the macaroni and cheese. You can cook some vegetables nice and soft, like some broccoli, or there's recipes for um, butternut squash, macaroni and cheese, things like that that can increase the nutrient value of those foods and still make them yummy and comforting because the quality of life is an important thing. I, I never tell people, don't eat this or that. It's just, you know, try to make sure that you've got a lot of nutrition into the foods that you are eating. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Maria Erdman. She's the registered dietitian nutritionist at the Upstate Cancer Center. Let's talk about foods to avoid, if there are any, um, when you're undergoing lung cancer treatment. Um, fried foods. Is that, does that, in moderation, is that okay? Um, again, it comes down to how people 
uh, where people are in, in the process. Because lung cancers are so frequently found late, if people are in a process of uh, having treatment for palliative reasons, I always say quality of life is important. If um, something fried is a food that is one of your favorites, you know, don't avoid it completely. Um, smaller portions are always better. Um, they can cause, fried foods tend to cause gastric issues and chemotherapy and treatment already causes gastric issues. So uh, we do tell people to be careful with those types of foods. Um, so. It, but again, if you know if a chicken wing is going to just make your day, then you know carefully try some. <laughs> now, what about sweets or added sugars? Um, there is a myth that sugar feeds cancer. In reality, um, cancer cells tend to metabolize sugar differently. So sugar in itself does not cause cancer to grow. Um, we, however, dissuade people from eating or drinking a lot of straight sugar simply because there are not many other nutritional benefits to that. Soda, you know, that's, it's just sugar. There's nothing, there's no protein, there's no healthy fats, there's, there's no vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients. So that's a good reason to avoid heavy sugar items. However, I always tell people, you know, quality of life is important. So if you really need something sweet, um, nut, nuts covered with dark chocolate are something. You know, nuts are good. They've got healthy fats and fibers and some protein. And dark chocolate has some magnesium and some antioxidants. You know, in, of course, moderation, um, which is how people tend to be eating at this time anyway. Um, or something like an oatmeal cookie made with oats and nuts and chopped up apples or raisins can be a sweet treat that also has a lot of nutrition in it. Now, what about caffeine? Is that something to be aware of? Um, only if your doctor has told you not to have caffeine because of the treatment you're going through. Um, Coffee and tea both have a lot of antioxidants in them and therefore are not bad things to eat during cancer treatment. I know some people say, well, I'm not doing that because it's going to dehydrate me. Well, a couple cups of coffee or tea in the morning will not dehydrate you, you know, instantaneously. <laughs> of course, it's always a good idea then to continue drinking water um, and other beverages throughout the day. Now, what about alcohol? Alcohol is tricky. So alcohol is a toxin to the human body. It is, um, as soon as we drink alcohol, our livers go to work trying to get rid of it because uh, through evolution, our bodies have realized that too much alcohol is a dangerous thing. Um, so it can get in the way of chemotherapy treatments um, by causing your liver to deal with the alcohol. And... It, Overall, that is dehydrating, and so we recommend strongly against drinking alcohol through treatment. Um, I do know that some patients do not follow those recommendations. Um, I'm not sure if there are studies showing you know, better or worse outcomes, but uh, I'm pretty sure that um, outcomes would be better <laughs> if you don't drink alcohol. And probably the physicians, depending on what medicine you're on, would be alerting people that exactly, you really shouldn't yeah. be the, drinking. The physicians do tell patients that. Um, and you know, I've always said, again, with the quality of life, if you are at a family member's wedding and there's a champagne toast, one glass of champagne for a toast, you know, you can do that. That's, that's a, a quality of life issue. Let me ask you about deli meats and unpasteurized milk. Unpasteurized milk is never a good idea for anybody. And, um, you know, there, there are some dairy farmers out there who will be arguing with me. But um, it, it was, Pasteur came up with pasteurization many years ago for a good reason. Um, there's a lot of possibilities of illness with unpasteurized milk. So that's never a good idea. Um, as far as deli meats, deli meats tend to have nitrates and nitrites to preserve them, and those have been associated with a slight increased risk of cancer. Um, again, it's better to have fresh foods, um, so cooking or, or baking a chicken or turkey leg or breast and making sandwiches out of that. However, that's work intensive. So, you know, 
it's it's again a lifestyle choice. If you are still smoking, is avoiding deli meats going to reduce your risk of getting cancer? Probably not. Um, so really looking at what your choices are. There's also like bacon, for example, is another one of those things that a processed meat, bacon sausage, mm -hmm. sure. um, is associated with an increased risk of cancer. And, you know, I, I'm not going to tell people don't ever eat bacon because people love bacon. I don't understand it, but <laughs> they do. Um, so it's, it's a matter of cutting back and not making it a part of your everyday life anymore um, and starting to substitute in healthier foods. And when I talk with a patient, we talk about options. Now, just about every like diet that I've heard of emphasizes vegetables and fruits. Are they vegetables and fruits? Are they more important when someone is in treatment for lung cancer? Um, more important than normal or a healthy person? Yeah, the, the need to add more vegetables I, I to your diet. I think it is important that people get them, just as it is important if every healthy person ate the recommended amount of uh, fruits and vegetables and plant-based foods, we may, we might actually have fewer cancer diagnoses. Oh, to begin with. Um, because likely more fruits and vegetables tends to decrease your caloric load. Um, so people would be less overweight, which actually uh, obesity accounts for, uh, there's estimates of about 30% of all cancer diagnoses. So not specific necessarily to lung cancer, but yeah, integrating plant-based foods, fruits and vegetables into the diet is, is always important. Tell me what your favorite vegetables are. Well, I used to hate Brussels sprouts, but then I found a friend uh, had slow roasted them in a cast iron skillet with garlic and onions. And boy, I just, they are so delicious. I find any vegetable roasted with olive oil and a little sea salt and pepper is really a delicious thing. Good to know. This information has been great. So thank you to registered dietitian nutritionist Maria Erdman of the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, one of the founders of Syracuse's Community Trauma Response Team tells about its creation. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Gang-related violence has been a continual problem in impoverished inner-city neighborhoods throughout the United States. In Syracuse in 2010, a community trauma response team was established. Here in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about the role of this team and its success is one of the founders, Timothy Jennings Bay. Welcome to HealthLink on Air. Thank you. So let's talk about how the community trauma response team came to be. Uh, a number of years ago, myself, former chief of police, Frank Fowler, and the president of the Common Council and co-founders of Mothers Against Gun Violence, Helen Hudson, uh, we were noticing in the community when we were respond to crime scenes, uh, which was on a volunteer basis for us, that the victims, as well as the perpetrators of the crime, they were getting younger and younger. Um, I remember one night in particular, there were about seven shootings and one night. And uh, at this particular shooting on the south side of the city, there was a she had to be about between 12 and 14 uh, years old, a little girl. And she was uh, crying on the sidewalk hysterically. Obviously, you could tell she had a relationship with one of the individuals that was shot. Uh, we left that crime scene and made our rounds throughout the city to other crime scenes. And when we got back, the same little girl was still sitting on the sidewalk crying. Um, people were walking around her or just stepping over her like it was business as usual. Um, so the very next day, uh, myself, former chief of police, uh, Frank Fowler, and Helen Hudson, um, president of the Common Council here in the city, we sat down and came up with the uh, program called the Trauma Response Team. We wanted to address the victims outside of the yellow tape because there are thousands of victims outside of the yellow tape. Uh, I, I call trauma the invisible demon. Um, that's something you can't see. You don't know what people carry. You don't know what they deal with. 
on a day to day basis. So we wanted to put a process in place to kind of, you know, address that as much as we could. And so children or um, preteens are part of that, but not not necessarily the limit to that. No, everybody's traumatized. Uh, If you live under uh, that canopy or there are particular zip codes in our city, 13204, 13205, where uh, there are gunshots day in and day out. Um, just to hear a gunshot is traumatizing, uh, let alone if you're unfortunate uh, to be hit by gunfire or if you're murdered, uh, because that changes the dynamic of the family overnight. Are you aware of other communities in the United States that have something similar, a, a community trauma response team like this? Well, we looked around. I don't think it's on this level. And I've, I've got calls from Seattle, Washington, everywhere. They wanted to know how were we able to maintain this program over that long period of time. Um, there were a lot of hands in the pot, so to speak. Our former uh, mayor, Stephanie Miner, our current mayor uh, and deputy mayor, uh, Ben Walsh and uh, Sharon Owens, uh, here at Upstate, Mark Budaleri, social work department, uh, Syracuse University, which you see the article under the direction of Dean Murphy at the School of Falk. So there's a collaboration that doesn't get enough attention here in our city and in our county um, that speaks to this issue. Everybody having faith in my ability to articulate uh, the issue. So we're really above board here in Syracuse. There's a lot of good people at the table that uh, really have a vested interest in our families and our children um, dealing with this issue of trauma. Maybe the a- actual, the collaborative nature is what keeps it strong because you're nine, almost 10 years into yeah, this definitely. and it's still very well operating. And Yep, definitely. So there was a paper published in the Journal of Urban Health in 2015 about this program, and it said there was a significant reduction in gang-related gunshots and murders after the trauma response team was created. Is mm-hmm. that still the case? Yeah, that's still the case with a lot of our other partners. Um, the SNUG program, which is directed by uh, Randy White. Uh, like I said, there's a, a great collaboration uh, in place. So that's still, you know, the fact a lot of times those statistics or numbers aren't shown because if I have a off the grid conversation with an individual, um, you know, that's operating from the standpoint of pride and ego and they want to hurt another individual, that's not something I could put on Channel 10 on the news or right, right. talk about it on the radio because some things are off the grid. So a lot of our work is off the grid. And that's one thing um, we've been, you know, taking a bull by the horns to see how we can actually uh, present this data without people being offended or exposing certain elements uh, in the community that people just, you know, want to keep to themselves when it comes to the neighborhood conflict. So how do you tie the drop to the existence of the team, though? Because these two things can be happening, but how do you make the connection that it's the team's presence that's having the impact? Is that pretty much everyone agrees that that's what it is? Or? Well, you could you could see if you look over you know a five or ten year period, there are other processes in place that hasn't changed those numbers, uh. right? So when we infuse our consciousness and we put boots on the ground uh, with our team, then you could kind of see things start to shift. The paradigm moves a little bit. Um, so, you know, that's how we look at things and how we measure it, right? Our presence and, you know, our relationship with the community and the families and the young people. And, you know, we just take full advantage of that. Um, it's a lot of hard work, you know. One of the things I pulled from this paper was that um, gang members were, um, they perpetrated 78% of the city's homicides, um, right. most of which were vengeance for a previous murder. Is that still, percentage still that high? No, nah, the percentages went down. And right. what they found out about Syracuse, New York, the uh, neighborhood conflict situation here is not like bigger cities like a Chicago or a Philadelphia. Here it's it's very difficult to get a handle on because it's what they call interpersonal violence. So it's kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys, like if you shoot somebody I love, then we come back, we try to shoot or kill somebody you love, and then it just goes back and forth. Right, there's really no rhyme and reason to it. When you think of gang, you think of some type of structure, 
Right, more organized. Right, more organized, but here is more neighborhood conflict and more interpersonal. Well, even so, there's some gang members from the largest gangs in this area have been prosecuted and put in prison. And I wonder if their absence from the streets has made a difference, if you see if that's an impact or or not. Not really. It's kind of an ebb and flow. Um, You know, as they say, if you remove something, nature will fill that void. So unfortunately, you have young people growing up in poverty and the overexposure to the trauma um, and sometimes as children, their brains are not fully developed, so they make those mistakes. Um, they start running with a peer group, making the wrong decisions, and they find themselves in, you know, bad situations. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Timothy Jennings Bay about the Community Trauma Response Team in Syracuse. I want to ask you to talk about what it's like for someone who's not a gang member, but who lives in one of these census tracts where violence and gang activity is high, um, what what can parents do to keep their kids safe in that community? Well, I always ask the question because people outside of the community, um, the only way you could connect with people on any level, especially under the canopy of trauma, you have to display some type of empathy. So I always ask people, how would you parent in a war zone? Because it's a war zone. Right. How would you parent? How would you go about parenting your son or your daughter? Well, you think of a war zone and you think of, you know, keeping them sheltered. They don't go outside. You don't let them be near a window. You don't, I mean, you live in a prison of your own home, right? Right. So people start to move uh, based off of fear. They did an interesting uh, study, um, uh, a friend of ours and a colleague, he works downstate, um, uh, well, throughout the state, but he's from Yonkers. He's uh, one of the directors for the SNUG program. And they uh, did an experiment with some mice, but they left the mice to their own devices. But in the midst of, the, in the midst of this experiment, they took one cat hair and dropped it in the middle of the mice. And they all started to break out and go to their respective corners and wouldn't move. They were almost stifled by fear. So that's kind of the same thing we see in the community. That one gunshot is like that cat hair, right? And it moves people to their respective corners. And sometimes people don't want to cross boundaries because we've lost so much. There are so many children um, that's been buried um, in this dynamic since we started keeping the numbers with Mothers Against Gun Violence since 1996. It's over 400 and some odd people murdered, right? That's not natural, right? Right you here have, in Syracuse. Right here in Syracuse. And you have children who grow up, they're part of these families, they're part of this community, they're exposed to this, and then we expect them to go to school and sit down and get good grades. So we're, we're, we're asking the impossible of these young people and their families. What does it do to a person when it's continual violence that they witness or that they hear? Um, and you mentioned like trying to go to school and study. Is that even possible? You become numb, right? You really become numb to things around you. Uh, it's hard for you to feel, uh, right? You start to calculate in your mind that I could be next. So now you have, you know, suicidal, homicidal ideation. You start looking at your friends and your peer group wondering who's going to be next. So it's almost like being on a roller coaster. You know, when you go up a roller coaster and right when you reach the pinnacle of it and it drops, imagine living with that feeling in your stomach every that day. That angst that's just there. Yeah, that... every day. Wow. Well, it might be simplistic to say, well, they should just move. That's not a solution. Right. People can't just move out of this right. environment. Right. And, and as they say, no matter where you go, there you are. Yeah. Right. So just to move where. Right. And and you have to remember, a lot of these people uh, live under the canopy of poverty. Um, so to move that, that sounds logical, but not possible. Yeah, that's a hurdle. That's a major hurdle. So this community trauma response team, can you walk me through when there is a violence or a shooting in the community, what does the response team, how are you activated? What do you do? What is your role? Well, my phone is hooked to the 911 center. 
um, along with other team members. So the call would come out. It would give the location, the description of the individual, and the nature of the injuries. Um, it slowed down a little, but in the past, uh, we would go directly to the crime scene, and we would act as a liaison between the police department and the community. Because when we created it, I understand that's a stress relationship historically. So to act as a liaison between the families and the police department, I felt that was important because somebody shot and experiencing that type of trauma, the last thing you want is more confusion. So that's what we call the first level of response. The second level, we come here to upstate um, and respond at the emergency room. Because that's the trauma center. Because that's the trauma center, right? So um, try to keep the ambulance bay clear because ambulance still have to come in and out. You have people who may be getting out of their personal vehicles or Uber or a cab with sick children, or they may be sick and run into a dynamic that they know nothing about, right? So we try to act as a liaison between the hospital staff and the community as well to get families in, right, in a, a, a timely and, you know, a manner uh, where they still feel whole and respected. And then the third level, we have the follow-up process with Mothers Against Gun Violence where they, you know, they check on families and family members to make sure uh, they're exposed to the necessary resources that they need after they experience uh, a trauma or a tragedy. And then we do preventive things like we'll go on the corner and fry turkeys and hand out apple cider, lemonade, hot dogs, hamburgers, just to keep those lines of communication open. Because the last thing I didn't want to do was have people in the community feel like uh, we're just showing up when something happens. And that's not the case. We're always visible and present. When something does happen, and, and this paper talked about the vengeance killings, you know, someone gets killed, do you immediately think about, okay, what's the retaliation going to be? What can we do to intervene and prevent it? Naturally. That's where our SNUG program in the city of Syracuse, uh, they come into play. They manage the conflict or those conflicts. So they infuse themselves into that process, go to both sides of the aisle, and to see if we can, you know, come up with some peaceful measures so another mother doesn't have to feel that pain mm. of, of other mothers in our community. What can you tell me about the Street Addiction Institute? Street Addiction Institute. This is where I think um, people, even here in the city of Syracuse or across our country, downplay the genius that we have here uh, in the city of Syracuse. So street addiction is a theory that I created that highlights the fact that the streets have an addictive nature, just like cocaine, alcohol, or gambling. And people who are reared in that process are in need of respite and rehabilitation before you can um, mainstream them back into any quote-unquote traditional educational setting, job setting, or career path. Uh, that theory doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Um, and it came right here from Syracuse, and I'm from those same zip codes that these young people are from that same trauma, right? Um, which I turned that trauma into triumph, right? I looked at it, um, you know, and, and I said something good has to come out of this eventually. So I don't take the work light. All of my friends, even the young people uh, who lose their lives recently, um, I, I see this as a ministry. I, I try to speak for those who aren't able to speak anymore. And so I, I take the work very seriously because it's my ministry. I feel like that's what I was born to do. I feel like that's why I survived uh, to be able to articulate this side of the aisle. Well, it's important work. Thank you to uh, Timothy Jennings Bay, one of the founders of the Community Trauma Response Team in Syracuse. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Joyce Holmes McAllister has published two books of poetry. The first was Before We Knew, the second was Return, and what is amazing is Joyce did this in her 80s. She sent us for this new issue two new poems that are searing and emotional and not sentimental. The first poem is called Yesterday. Yesterday can burn, melt you down, turn flesh to ash. 
even after memory dims, tries to hide inside long years you once took in, touched, loved. You thought you had forgotten. Then someone asks. The question sparks a raging fire, brings the sear of reignited time, turns blackest darkness into scorching sun, makes the past rise up, demand to live again inside that buried yesterday. Then you know how long dead fire can blaze, break your heart again. The second poem is a sonnet entitled, You May Not Know. You may not know, but I have left you now. Failed vision seeks the truth, and so I dare to look more closely, change my heart somehow, not mourn the loss of something never there. I leave without a word that you can hear, thus keep our parting gay, low-key, and fair, that you may feel a difference yet unclear, then sense my change and wonder, is it there? In youth, I would have mourned at length your loss and blamed myself for wrongs, if sparse or true. I now know both of us will pay a cost, but seasoned hearts can mend and start anew. With sense and age, we let lost passions cool, no longer stay to play love's endless fool. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a new way to do a prostate biopsy. If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Mm-hmm.